Hello folks, and welcome to episode 5 of World Beyond the West. Today's episode is a special one because it marks a year since Russian tanks rolled across the Ukrainian border and irrevocably changed the course of world history. It's a day many thought would never come, even as tens of thousands of Putin's troops massed along Ukraine's frontier in the days prior to February 24th last year, there were those who believed two world wars had caused enough suffering and death that no European nation would ever risk crossing that line again. And yet, here we sit 365 days later, embroiled in the largest armed conflict Europe has seen since the swastika was torn down from the Reichstag in May 1945. The war has already had profound implications for many countries, Europe has had to contend with soaring energy prices, much of the developing world is facing potential famine as Ukraine struggles to export its grain, and Western powers are pouring untold millions in military aid into the war effort. But these tribulations are incomparable to those endured by the people of Ukraine, tens of thousands of whom have been massacred by Russian missiles, or had their homes and livelihoods destroyed. Meanwhile, more than 100,000 Russians have been sent to the slaughter by their commanders, and the Russian citizens who do not support the war have seen their country become a pariah on the world stage. To do this episode justice, I spoke with Dr. Hussein Aliyev, who is an expert on conflict and security in Russia, Ukraine, and the former Soviet Union, and spent several years embedded with Ukrainian pro-government paramilitary groups during the conflict with pro-Russian separatists from 2015 to 2019. He was gracious enough to give me more than an hour of his time, and we managed to cover a wide variety of topics in what was a fascinating conversation. This one is a cracker. I hope you enjoy. Well, Hussein, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, before we dive in, uh, it would be great if you could tell everybody about uh, your background, uh, your research, and how you came to uh, become an expert in this field. Uh, yeah, thank you very much, David. My name is Hussein Aliyev, and I'm a lecturer in East and Central European Studies at the University of Glasgow. I'm based at the Center for Central and Eastern European Studies, and uh, most of my research uh, since um, 2014 has been on the Ukrainian conflict, but previously uh, I've researched quite extensively um, insurgency in the North Caucasus, uh, specifically in Chechnya and Dagestan. So uh, um, I was in area studies throughout most of my career, and uh, thematically my research focuses specifically on uh, uh, insurgency, counterinsurgency, and armed conflict. So since the start of uh, Donbass war in 2014, much of my research focused on uh, mobilization, on, on pro-government mobilization in Ukraine. And uh, I've done quite a lot of field work uh, starting from 2015, start, starting from spring 2015, all the way until um, uh, the end of 2019, among members of Ukrainian pro-government uh, battalions, uh, volunteer battalions and uh, I specifically focused on why these individuals uh, decided to mobilize for, for, for the government and uh, why they participated in the conflict. Uh, also, um, I focused uh, a lot on, on issues of ethno-nationalism, on uh, aspects of uh, political ideology as part of this mobilization uh, processes. Currently, I'm a principal investigator on a large uh, research project that examines uh, mobilization of foreign fighters in the context of the former Soviet Union, but essentially focusing on the case of Ukraine. 
that's great. That's great. I think uh, we're definitely going to get into some of that, uh, some of the things you mentioned there. I'm, I'm particularly interested to hear a bit more about the field work that you conducted um, between, I think you said 2015 and 2019 with the, the pro-government volunteers in Ukraine. And uh, I think also a lot of the work that you will have done looking at ethno-nationalism will be really, really useful in this chat. So we'll definitely circle back to that. But uh, to get started, we are recording this on the 21st uh, of February, which is three days uh, before the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, 2022. And given that we're coming up to that year mark, I'd like to start off by asking you what you think the hallmarks of the war are thus far. What are the most significant factors that have shaped the conflict and, and that have set it apart from other ones that we may have seen in recent decades? I would say that um, probably everything about this war is very different from uh, quite a lot of other post-Soviet conflicts, or actually quite a lot of other conflicts which took place in Eastern Europe uh, since the end of World War II. And it, this uh, current um, Russian invasion of Ukraine is also very qualitatively different from uh, the first war, the Donbass war, which started in 2014 and then um, essentially ended as a an active combat phase conflict in 2015. Uh, in many aspects, well, e even some of the combatants with whom I've stayed in touch um, since 2015, and I've reconnected with them uh, now when they have remobilized uh, to participate in this conflict uh, last year, uh, they would say that this is a completely different war because uh, because of its scale, because of the sheer uh, territory that is involved in this conflict, uh, and uh, well, also the level of international involvement, I would say, on a completely different uh, level than it used to be previously in the Ukrainian conflict or in any other conflicts, for instance, even the Russian invasion of Georgia in 2008, it did not receive the same extent of uh, international attention and the same extent of, uh, I would say, retaliatory actions from the international community. So let's get let's let's get into that a little bit. So um, as you mentioned, the, the scale of the war and the involvement of the international community uh, and Western powers is quite significant. It seemed very much as though in the run up to the invasion and in the in the days following the invasion, it seemed very much as though Putin and his military commanders were expecting quite a quick victory. There was the shock and awe approach, which saw Russian tanks roll, you know, within ten miles of Kiev, um, and uh, Russian troops gained a lot of ground very quickly, but. As we all know, the, t the tide turned, and now Ukraine has launched a series of counterattacks, and the, the US and NATO EU countries have plowed untold billions of dollars worth of military aid and equipment, um, training and everything into the war effort to support Ukraine. Something I'd be quite interested in would be what you think the impact of that support will be moving forward, and will the West, the allied nations of, of NATO and the EU, be able to support Ukraine indefinitely? Uh, well, it will certainly depend on how long this uh, conflict will continue as a full-scale war. And uh, I would personally doubt that the conflict will continue indefinitely and the, that uh, Western partners will be required to provide such a long-term, uh, uh, probably a decade-long support. It, it, this is not very likely. But uh, it seems that Western partners are committed to support Ukraine at this point of time, and uh, they're certainly stepping up their support. And uh, for, for instance, half a year ago, it would be completely unimaginable that NATO states will provide tanks or, or even armored um, personal carriers to, to Ukraine the way they're doing now, just like uh, now the, the conversation is about uh, uh, supplying uh, fighter jets to Ukraine and uh, 
uh, there's no consensus at the moment, but a few months later, we might actually expect that happening. And there's a lot of Ukrainian analysts and actually uh, members of the Ukrainian government who claim that the fighter jets will actually be supplied. So there's certainly a lot happening behind the scenes uh, that we're not informed about until actual decisions are um, taken. So uh, quite possibly that uh, Western partners will be stepping up there aid to Ukraine, uh, possibly in order to enable Ukraine to achieve uh, uh, some of its goals, in order to uh, bring the conflict closer to an, to an end, because as we understand that uh, the conflict will drag on if Ukraine doesn't have advantage in a number of heavy weapons, and uh, if, if, it, if it is not able to change the situation on the ground, the conflict is likely to last a really long time. And this is clearly something that the Western partners is not particularly interested in because it's costly and uh, it generally war doesn't do good for business. So, yeah, most likely there, there will be a stepped up support in order to kind of achieve this breaking point when Ukraine will be able to, yeah. So where does that support end? What are the limits? Because a few months ago, it was unimaginable that NATO would be providing tanks and heavy weapons. Um, but there are still some red lines that haven't been crossed that we were talking about very early on in the war. One that springs to mind is in the first couple of weeks, there were a lot of people calling for NATO to establish a no-fly zone over Ukraine. And obviously that at the time was batted down because if Western powers enforce a no-fly zone over Ukraine and then a Russian jet enters the airspace and uh, NATO is forced to shoot it down, that's going to drag NATO into a much wider armed conflict. So although we are seeing a ramping up of aid from the West to Ukraine, there has to be some limits. So are they the same as they were at the very start of the war, or are those limits slowly being eroded and pushed further back? No, I think uh, the next step, as I've said, probably would be fighter jets for Ukraine. <clears throat> and the following step, most intuitively, should be a long-range missiles, because uh, uh, the fighter jets will not be very effective if they're not armed with um, longer-range missiles, and uh, this will be probably the next and most likely the final step. I would highly doubt that the Western countries will be able to supply Ukraine with, for example, cru cruise or ballistic missiles, which will be uh, well, possibly some of the shorter-range uh, models, but not something of a Tomahawk for example, um, a U.S. model or, or something that uh, would uh, go over, uh, let's say, uh, 300 kilometers or 200 kilometers. So uh, that should be probably a limit for the Western support. And obviously, uh, it's absolutely unimaginable for West to supply any sort of a, a nuclear um, weapons or in, any uh, sort of... A, well, yeah, I would, I would stop at nuclear weapons, definitely. So I would say that um, possibly long-range missiles uh, will be the limit of Western military aid. And uh, it, it's very natural to assume that they will be supplied after the fighter jets. And um, the, there's probably uh, the point at which uh, West uh, will stop. Uh, let's talk a bit more about the Russian efforts now. So um, we we know that Russia has a fairly significant stockpile of, of long-range missiles and weapons, but we've also seen them recently uh, turn to North Korea and Iran to replenish those stocks. On the ground, though, it seems very much as though the Russian 
army proper has struggled quite significantly, particularly in Donetsk, so around the Bakhmut, Vuledar, Soledar areas. Um, and that's become one of the key narratives of the conflict in the past few months. And we've seen this rise of uh, the Wagner group of mercenaries uh, headed by Prigozhin. You see Prigozhin saying, we've taken these towns all by ourselves, and he's kind of developing um, his status as some real significant player in the war. Could you expand a little bit on how this came about? So talking about how Prigozhin's Wagner group and the increasing significance of that group could affect Russia's military campaign and the decisions that are made at the highest levels of military command. Yes, that's an interesting question. Throughout the start of this current Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think we've seen these waves of uh, changes within uh, uh, the tactics and within broader strategic goals uh, and uh, approaches that Russian military command used uh, to dealing with this conflict. And obviously the start of this war was probably... Uh, it, it was a period when uh, most likely the Russian military commander, well, probably not the Minister of Defense himself, but uh, uh, Gerasimov most likely was in charge of this military operation. But uh, And we've seen how uh, did this end up, essentially it uh, did end up in a stalemate in, in summer of last year, that's when... Um, uh, the two cities in uh, Donetsk region in uh, Donbass, Lysychansk um, and Severodonetsk, were captured by pro-Russian forces. And then that's where they basically ran out of steam. And that's when a decision was made apparently somewhere high up in Kremlin to uh, allocate more powers and more authority to Prigozhin himself and his uh, Wagner group. And uh, uh, they were essentially provided with a chance to prove themselves, and uh, uh, they've been relatively efficient at uh, preventing Ukrainians uh, from launching any other la- large-scale counter-offensives or pretty much any counter-offensives, because uh, they created such an intensity of uh, combat on just one relatively limited uh, uh, stretch of front line, which basically... Uh, consumed quite a lot of Ukrainian resources and efforts. So uh, although the territory that they have um, managed to capture ever since is quite limited, and it's arguable whether Solidar was actually captured by Wagner or by um, paratroopers and uh, Marines, uh, Russian uh, military uh, forces who have been um, sent later on to, to support Wagner. So, And now we see that uh, this um, deeply rooted disagreement between the Minister of Defense and the Wagner group is probably reaching its peak because I think just today we've seen uh, this recording made by Prigozhin where he complains that uh, Wagner group is uh, prohibited from receiving any um, ammunition or uh, any supplies uh, from the Minister of Defense stocks, and uh, they're essentially running out of ammunition, so they have to borrow ammunition from some other um, uh, semi-paramilitary um, parts of the army, such as uh, the Chechen uh, battalions and so on. So uh, they are in a quite critical situation, and before we've seen um, uh, members of Wagner Group are bitterly criticizing the Minister of Defense, and I think as 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 early as last week, there were actually uh, some video recordings of Wagner members uh, using uh, uh, not particularly friendly terms uh, when um, talking about uh, Gerasimov and talking about the Minister of Defense, uh, Shaigu, and a number of other generals. 
So the, the, there seems to be a fairly significant conflict between Prigozhin and uh, the Minister of Defense. Also because uh, Suravikin, uh, General Suravikin, who was previously in charge of this uh, so-called special operation, was on very good terms with Prigozhin, and essentially he was an ally of Prigozhin. They were, um, I would say, friends before, and uh, that's when Prigozhin was allowed to do whatever he wanted to do. But now we see Suravikin replaced with Gerasimov, and uh, Gerasimov is clearly not on a very good terms with uh, uh, Prigozhin. We've seen that Wagner is not lo is no longer allowed to recruit uh, prison inmates, which was a main source of uh, human uh, capital, I would put it that way. And now it's a Ministry of Defense who has uh, the access to to prisons, and uh, they can essentially uh, mobilize and recruit prison inmates instead of Wagner Group. So they kind of a uh, um, I would say stole uh, his go his gold uh, gold mine or his gold resource, which was the key to his uh, relative success so far. And possibly, uh, unless something is changing uh, at the top level, and unless Putin actually saves Prigozhin in the very last moment, we would most likely see him falling out of grace and possibly be being completely removed from the front lines in Ukraine. When you said that um, Surovikin and Prigozhin were somewhat friends and colleagues and, and had a good relationship, um, and then when Surovikin was demoted below uh, Gerasimov, that's when uh, Wagner's influence and, and Prigozhin's influence started to wane a little bit. Is that just a symptom of the fact that Gerasimov was promoted? Do you think it was actually a calculated decision by Putin and his inner circle to remove Surovikin from that top spot to actually have that knock-on effect of preventing Prigozhin from developing such a sphere of influence? Well, I think uh, there's generally uh, two or three camps uh, of um, influencers, of these military influencers within Kremlin who are trying to um, affect Putin's uh, attention. And one of them is obviously this uh, traditional uh, military establishment represented by the Minister of Defense, uh, Minister himself, uh, uh, Sergei Shagu, and his uh, chief of staff, Gerasimov. And... Uh, uh, they they have been struggling for Putin's attention with this uh, private, uh, uh, I would say, uh, well, semi obviously semi-private actors such as Prigozhin, who have been uh, trying his best to basically remove Ministry of Defense uh, from a, a lot of opportunities to participate in the conflict or to to gain Putin's uh, favor. Uh, the other camp would be probably different um, actors within the Russian political establishment, such as, for example, Ramzan Kadyrov, the, uh, the head of Chechnya, who is actually also on very good uh, terms with Prigozhin, and who is also trying to kind of carve a place for himself within this military operation at the expense of uh, at the expense of Ministry of Defense, again also criticizing generals. Uh, from the Russian um, head of staff. So uh, essentially, I would say um, this is a conflict in which Prigozhin was trying to uh, essentially put himself um, top of military agenda. He, he created uh, his own, um, not necessarily organization, but this Wagner Center in St. Petersburg. I think he opened it uh, a month ago or something. So that was another sign of... Uh, his spreading influence, and he uh, talked about participating in politics openly, and uh, there were certainly discussions about Prigozhin as uh, some sort of a political actor and uh, a place for him in a uh, political establishment in Russia, which would be a scary option for a lot of uh, uh, people, a lot of um, generals within the uh, Ministry of uh, Defense, because that would mean that uh, he will try to 
either replace them completely or to replace them with his own people. And um, Sora Vikin, for example, who was on very good relations or still is on good relations with Prigozhin. And uh, yeah, essentially, this is a conflict uh, among these um, shadowy camps of, of uh, power brokers. And uh, th there was a moment when Prigozhin succeeded in this conflict, uh, apparently because he was able to prove to Putin that uh, he, he's capable of doing things more efficiently than the Ministry of Defense. But uh, it seems that at the moment, the Ministry of Defense is... is uh, uh, more successful, primarily because uh, Prigozhin has not fulfilled his promises. He he used up a lot of resources. He he used a lot of manpower, which he was granted access as a result of um, his promises. But he, his achievements are quite uh, limited. Uh, well, there's significant. Uh, from the perspective of this conflict, but they're most likely insignificant for Putin, who would expect something far more sizable. And that's probably the reason that uh, Prigozhin is now falling out of uh, Putin's favor and being replaced by the Ministry of Defense people. But it's hard to say whether the situation will persist. Are they expecting that the Russian army will be reinforced and will therefore be able to at least achieve a similar level of success that the Wagner Group has thus far? Because if not, although they may be protecting themselves uh, in the Kremlin from the uh, rising influence of Prigozhin, they are essentially shooting themselves in the foot in terms of their success on the ground. Uh, they have actually been in a very difficult uh, situation since the start of this so-called partial mobilization in October. That's when they mobilized hundreds of thousands of reservists and they uh, they spent several months, uh, well, some of them were not trained and uh, sent straight to the front lines, but um, the majority of them received some level of training over the last couple of months or over the last essentially three months. And uh, now they're being used in these military operations um, in uh, Donbass um, and mostly around Bakhmut and Ugladar. Um, so uh, the expectation is that uh, they will be uh, the force, um, well, I would say the expectation was before the start of this current offensive, that they will change the situation on the ground and uh, they will essentially replace Wagner as a key military force, uh, Russian military force on the ground. But as we can see now, the, this offensive has not been particularly successful so far and uh, uh, the capture of Solidar is certainly a, a small victory, but it's nothing uh, on the scale expected by the Ministry of Defense. So uh, the achievements uh, so far, I would say, since uh, since the start of January were very modest. And uh, uh, the big problem is that they're running out of this manpower, which they have uh, mobilized early on in October. So the decision was made to replace them with uh, prison inmates uh, because uh, Prigozhin has been relatively successful in using uh, this resource uh, quite indiscriminately because uh, unlike reservists, uh, prison inmates, they literally have no rights. Uh, there will be no uh, discontent among the Russian public is, uh, if these people, most of whom are convicted murderers and rapists, uh, will actually be killed in the conflict if they're taken prisoner. So, uh, in a way, it's an expandable resource, and uh, Prigozhin was relatively successful in exploiting that resource. But whether the Ministry of Defense will be able to actually exploit that resource, that human resource, as successfully as Prigozhin, that's a big question, because Prigozhin essentially used... Uh, 
the method that uh, Russian states will not be allowed to use, and uh, Prigozhin threatened uh, those inmates with execution in case of uh, various offensive, in case of desertion and lots of other things. And uh, it, there were lots of uh, reports that dozens of these um, prison inmates that were executed, that were tortured by, by Wagner members themselves. And it's not likely that a Russian Minister of Defense will have resources to control all those inmates. Uh, certainly, they, they will probably not be able to execute them at will to the same degree that Prigozhin did. And uh, uh, they will also lack commanding officers to actually lead these people into, into combat because uh, that would require quite quite a lot of efforts on their part. And in the case of Prigozhin, uh, that was a bit different because he, he didn't require uh, too many commanding officers or he didn't require any commanding officers to lead them in battle because he was using them as essentially ca cannon fodder so there's a big question how effectively the Ministry of uh, Defense would be able to use Prigozhin's methods. Uh, and I would expect that they will not be able to, to repeat what Wagner Group was doing simply because they, they are a completely different institution, which would be completely unable to use uh, the same uh, methods as Wagner Group uh, did or does. Let's say then that's exactly what happens and the defense minister in the Russian army is not as effective as Prigozhin at fighting back the Ukrainians and, and capturing certain territories. Let's say all they're able to do is hold off Ukrainian counteroffensives and maintain this stalemate that we've seen in the past couple of months. Is that enough really for Putin to sort of claim a victory long term? We all, we all know, based on the, the initial days of the invasion, that Putin's aim was to topple the Ukrainian government, potentially install a, a pro-Russian puppet government and absorb Ukraine into the wider Russian Federation as part of his Russian world concept, uh, this, this idea that he has held for a long time. If the conflict grinds on for years and they're able to maintain a presence there, could Ukraine essentially, over a long period of time, start to lose control of those territories and be worn down and the support from the West start to wane? Um, is that enough, really, for Putin to declare victory? And is that enough to satisfy him? It is certainly not enough. And uh, I would say that Russian troops are acting on a, on a borrowed time because, uh, as we've seen from from uh, last one year of conflict, uh, the Russian military did not did not appear particularly efficient at uh, holding territories, at creating defensive fortifications, at essentially creating uh, viable and efficient uh, defense lines. So. In case if Ukrainians uh, would be prepared and would have enough resources for another counteroffensive, uh, they would certainly be able to find the weaker spot in Russian defenses and would break through. And following that breakthrough, the entire defensive line will collapse as it ha happened in Kharkov region. So uh, the only option for for uh, Russian military and for for the Russian government is to keep on uh, with those uh, offensive operations, which will distract Ukrainians from their own counter-offensive operations. So that's the only option for, for Russians uh, to, to not necessarily to succeed, but to at least keep those territories that they have. And as, you, as you've said, it's certainly not enough um, for uh, Putin to present um, uh, the control over the current uh, currently occupied Ukrainian territories as a success. As a bare minimum, uh, they would need to... Um, occupy all of uh, Donetsk and Lugansk regions in order to present it as a, some sort of a minimalist version of victory to the Russian public. Again, it's it's falling short of any of the expectations uh, that 
uh, those Russians who are supporting Putin might have in terms of uh, what uh, Russia was planning to do in Ukraine, such as, for example, taking a full control of Kherson region, also of the Parisia region, but uh, as a bare minimum, uh, taking a full control of Donetsk and Lugansk regions is something that could be sold to the Russian public as success. And again, we've seen uh, the, the goals and objectives of this so-called special operation shift so many times uh, throughout the last year. And uh, there were a number of uh, statements, I think, by, by Putin himself that it's an absolute goal to take full control of Donetsk and Lugansk regions. So uh, it would possibly be quite easy for him to present uh, full control over this region uh, as a victory in this conflict, at least as, as some sort of a as some sort of an interim victory in this conflict, which uh, would be a first satisfying step for the Russian public for for his supporters. But again, that's a huge question whether they will be able to actually take full control, especially of Donetsk region, which still has quite a number of uh, uh, relatively large cities uh, in in the Ukrainian hands, and uh, the territory itself is, is quite significant. So uh, it will be a huge challenge uh, for, for Russian troops uh, to take control of that territory. And considering how much time and resources they've spent just on trying to encircle Bakhmut, uh, I would personally doubt that they will be in a position to, to take control of the rest of Donetsk region. Fantastic. Um, so we've talked quite a lot about the conflict in terms of uh, the military efforts uh, and the political implications of it. Uh, now I would like to dive a little bit more into um, the effect this had on the people, uh, both in Russia and Ukraine. First of all, particularly with regards to young people. In Ukraine, the day of the invasion, Zelensky declared martial law and fighting age males were forced to stay in the country. Um, we've had millions of people displaced and tens of thousands of people have uh, have died in Ukraine, civilians that is, obviously tens of thousands more soldiers as well. So what has the war done to impact the lives of the youth in Ukraine in terms of future prospects, their livelihoods? What does life look like for them now in the next few years? Well, it depends on a lot on how long this uh, war will, will last, actually. As you've mentioned, uh, there's uh, uh, lots of uh, negative consequences of this current uh, conflict on uh, young people in Ukraine. Uh, Specifically, well, obviously, because of the level of destruction, also because of the limited opportunities, there's lots of unemployment in Ukraine uh, among young people in particular, but uh, among all ages overall. And uh, there are few economic prospects at the moment as well, and also significant numbers of uh, young people, young males uh, are actually uh, mobilized to serve in the military, and essentially there are no opportunities uh, either to study or to work uh, abroad for ma uh, males in Ukraine at the moment because of the uh, closed borders. Uh, so it depends a lot on uh, what uh, the future holds in terms of military conflict, uh, because most of the Ukrainians that I'm uh, communicating with and have family in Ukraine as well, because my wife is Ukrainian, so there are a lot of expectations that the war will not last too long and that everything goes back to normal within a matter of several months. But as we've seen over the year, that does not happen and uh, the conflict drags on and uh, there's no clear end to the conflict. So that certainly increases um, uh, desperation, I would say, that increases this uh, kind of... Uh, 
uh, lack of any vision of future for a lot of young people in Ukraine because people who were left, for example, unemployed at the start of the war, they remain in exactly the same situation now and the situation is actually even worse. Uh, because of uh, all these um, uh, attempts uh, by 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 Russia to destroy U Ukrainian um, infrastructure, to target uh, these energy installations, power stations, so shortages of energy and uh, problems with heating and so on. So the situation is not particularly um, positive, but uh, certainly a lot depends on. Uh, when this active phase of war uh, will end and when the borders will open up, which uh, probably um, at that point when the conflict will be closer to an end and when situation will improve uh, in terms of security and the borders will open up and uh, possibly there will be uh, flights uh, coming to and from Ukraine. In that case, there will be more opportunities for young people to actually work in the European Union because now Ukrainians have, uh, I would say, more legal rights uh, to, to do things in uh, in the EU. And uh, uh, there's also prospects of uh, a relatively um, uh, fast EU membership uh, opportunity for Ukraine. So uh, the future certainly holds positive things for Ukrainians, but a lot depends on how long this conflict will last, actually. And conversely, then, what about in Russia? The vast majority of Russia has not seen any direct on the ground implications of the war in terms of destruction or loss of loss of life. But Russia has become a pariah of the international community in the past year. Uh, how is that going to affect uh, a generation of younger Russians moving forward? I think much of the negative impact on Russia at the moment on uh, young people in Russia uh, is uh, in economic areas, primarily in terms of the uh, employment opportunities. Again, lots of uh, international companies have shut down their offices, have shut down their businesses in Russia. And uh, we've seen actually millions, uh, well, possibly around a million of younger Russians uh, trying to leave Russia when uh, this uh, partial mobilization started in uh October last year and uh, this uh, large numbers of Russians who are potentially preparing to leave Russia in case of if another wave of mobilization will be declared anytime soon. So it was a significant brain drain for, for, for Russia uh, since the start of this conflict and a lot of those people who have left, they, they uh, represented a significant um, uh, mass of individuals who uh, pushed forward uh, the Russian economy because a lot of them were working in IT and uh, all uh, other high-tech industries. Uh, and this is definitely something that Russia desperately needs. So uh, I would say that impact on Russia has has been quite significant in economic areas, and it's probably uh, likely to get worse as the time goes by and as uh, uh, there are less um, employment opportunities in Russia for young people, and there are certainly much less opportunities for them to study abroad or to build any sort of a successful careers back at home in Russia, because we, we see the effect of economic sanctions uh, becoming more and more feasible, or more, more and more actual, I would say, um, thinking about the proper word, uh, something that uh, is actually felt on the ground in Russia. And uh, uh, the things are likely to get worse economically for, for young people in Russia. Uh, and it's probably not something that they feel at the moment, but uh, we're, we're seeing uh, their prospects decreasing literally every month. 
there are areas of Kherson and Zaporizhia where the Russians have come in and they've established uh, local municipal governments. They've handed out Russian passports. They've converted their local currency to rubles um, and they have begun broadcasting state TV in those areas kind of removing the Ukrainian infrastructure and retrofitting a Russian infrastructure for the people there. I'm interested to know how life has changed for them, but also how life has changed for the thousands of Ukrainians that have been forcibly deported from regions of Ukraine and either moved further west into areas of Ukraine that are that are controlled more uh, strongly by, by Russia or across the border and into Russia itself. What is the impact for them? What does life look like for them now? I would say there are probably at least uh, two uh, two different groups of uh, these deported uh, Ukrainian uh, citizens. Uh, the first would be uh, those who are essentially supporting uh, the Russian world, Roskimir, or and uh, uh, who were uh, probably welcoming the Russian invasion. And uh, the, the, sadly, they composed a relatively um, sizable portion of uh, population in uh Donbass region, for example, less so in Zaporizhia, but also relatively um, sizable uh, portion of public in Kherson region. So, uh, essentially, these uh, supporters of Russian world, uh, some of them certainly stayed uh, in their places of residence, but quite a lot of them had to move away because of the conflict again, because of security, and because of the lack of uh, employment opportunities. They had to been forced to move either to Russia proper or to uh, Donetsk and Lugansk regions, and uh, they would probably certainly find it much easier to resettle in, in these territories. As far as I know, there were some uh, benefits, uh, financial uh, benefits offered to these settlers in Russia, in some Russian southern Russian regions, so they've been offered with uh, different uh, levels of support to resettle. Uh, the other group, I would say, those who, who were forcibly removed from frontline areas and uh, moved uh, either deeper into Russia or deeper into um, Russian-controlled territories of Ukraine. And uh, quite a lot of those people are most likely are not supporters of Russian world and not supporters of uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. And uh, some of them, uh, well, there are certainly lots of them who were allowed to leave Russia afterwards, so they basically had to travel to the Baltic states or to different EU states or either uh, temporarily settle in those EU states or to return back to Ukraine through those EU states. But that was certainly a very complicated and arduous journey for quite a lot of them. I assume that some of them have also had to settle in Russia because of the lack of uh, uh, opportunities to leave Russia. And uh, uh, there, there were also reports of a significant number of Ukrainian uh, children who were um, moved to Russia and who were uh, partly who became orphaned as a result of the conflict or partly um, who were uh, resettled in different parts of Russia forcibly. Some of these uh, children were returned back to Ukraine and we, we're hearing more and more of these uh, positive stories, but there are certainly also thousands of those who, who, are, who are still somewhere in Russia. Earlier on, you mentioned the the, the pro-government fighters in Ukraine that you spent a lot of time with um, for those years before leading up to 2019 and prior to the invasion uh, in 2022. You say that you've maintained contact with quite a few of them. Could you give us a bit more information 
and a bit more insight into what daily life is like for those people now. I imagine some of them are probably regular paid up members of the Ukrainian army. Other ones are likely members of territorial defense units and volunteer units. But could you give us a bit of an overview of, of what their day-to-day life is like, whether they're on the front lines or whether they're further back in Ukraine? Yes, actually, uh, as we know, during the first war in 2014-2015, uh, there were possibly over 50,000 volunteers who have uh, mobilized into this uh, semi-state uh, uh, power- paramilitary or militia organizations, uh, similar to Azov Regiment, for example. Uh, there, there were over 40 of similar ter- territorial defense battalions and uh, uh, volunteer battalions. Uh, and uh, they were uh, the backbone of the Ukrainian armed forces back in 2014 because the Ukrainian army basically was in a absolutely horrible shape when uh, the first war happened. So much of the fighting, especially much of the effective fighting, was carried out by these volunteer battalions. What happened after uh, Minsk to Minsk uh, two uh, agreements, which took place in February 2015, and essentially uh, the conflict started to de-escalate. Uh, there were certainly lots of uh, uh, violations, ceasefire violations taking place all the way until um, the current uh, full-scale inv- invasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia. But nevertheless, there was no active combat in uh, Donbas uh, from. Uh, approximately March and April 2015, all the way until February 22nd. So uh, thousands of those uh, paramilitary combatants, those volunteer combatants, they have demobilized. There were certainly those uh, hundreds who have stayed to serve, uh, to work as contract um, personnel with the Ukrainian armed forces. Some of them stayed in their so-called home battalions. For example, Azov was one of those successful organizations which have managed to successfully incorporate into the Ministry of Interior National Guard troops, and uh, they offered very attractive salaries uh, to to, to their uh, contract personnel. So there were those who have stayed and who became professional military. But most of those individuals who fought back in 2014-2015, they demobilized and they returned to civilian lives, they returned to civilian careers. Some of them maintained some connections with uh, their former comrades in arms and with, with their former battalions, their military organizations, but many of them did not. When this current conflict happened, most of them, uh, even before the, uh, Ukraine uh, declared uh, full mobilization, uh, essentially during the first hours of the Russian invasion, they have went back to the front lines and uh, uh, most of them, most of, most of those who fought in the first war, they found it's extremely difficult to get used to the current situation because this is a completely different uh, war, uh, something they, they, they have never experienced. For example, they have never experienced the Russian Air Force because uh, there was essentially no Air Force involved on uh, the separatist side uh, back then. And they, they had very limited experience of long-range heavy artillery, for example, because separatists did not rely that much on uh, artillery during that conflict and uh, they they also had no experience of this strange warfare because previously uh, the 
the war in Donbas was mostly a war of movement. So there were um, uh, these rapid offenses and counter offensives, and uh, there was no this protracted, uh, grueling uh, trench warfare, which is what they're experiencing nowadays. They have to sit in trenches and they have to endure artillery uh, bombardments for days and uh, days. And uh, uh, certainly, uh, a lot of them, despite their previous military experience, uh, have found that they have to learn a lot of things, especially how to use Western supplied weapons, how to uh, use uh, the tactics which NATO uh, instructors are teaching to them. A lot of them are actually being sent to various NATO states as part of these training missions, uh, Ukrainian military training missions. and. Uh, uh, essentially learning the tactics uh, from, from scratch because previously lots of them had no military experience although they participated in combat but that was essentially just some small scale skirmishes small arms fire and uh, uh, they, they never learned any military um, science any discipline or anything like that so uh, essentially they are rediscovering themselves now as as military personnel and the issue of age is also quite 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 a problem because a lot of them mobilized in their 30s during the first uh, Donbass war and now they're obviously in their 40s and it's it's more difficult for them to to endure all those hardships so in the way Ukraine certainly has possibly uh, half a million uh, people with uh, combat experience uh, from 2014-2015. But on the other hand, uh, the experience was very different and uh, they, they still have to learn a lot of things in order to be effective uh, on the front lines. And it's, it's a very difficult journey for them. So it's probably actually easier for those young uh, conscripts or those young reservists who have been called up uh, to to fight in the war uh, without any prior combat experience and uh, who are being sent to Western countries to, to learn things, to learn um, NATO standards. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's a difficult journey for those veterans. Yeah, I suppose if you've experienced conflict and combat, which is very much mobile, to then move to a World War One style kind of trench warfare where artilleries and tanks and, and uh, air support is thrown into the mix, the adaptation must be very high, especially for somebody who, as you said, has aged quite a bit and perhaps isn't in the best physical shape. But on the other hand, there's something to be said for pride in defense of a nation and the emotional response to, to the conflict of this scale. And that also applies to thousands of people who have come from around the world to fight on the front lines in Ukraine as part of volunteer battalions. Could you uh, expand a little bit on these volunteer battalions, how they came about, what the composition of those battalions generally is? Is it, is it largely veterans from around the world? Or is it, again, young people who have little to no combat experience who just think that it's a, a very valiant cause worth fighting and potentially dying for? Yes, basically during the first uh, days of this full-scale invasion of, of Ukraine, uh, there were probably thousands of international uh, volunteers who tried to uh, travel to Ukraine and to join uh, any sort of uh, Ukrainian armed uh, organizations, Ukrainian armed forces to, to help Ukraine to fight this war. But as soon as uh, Ukraine started to close up its borders, essentially for its own citizens, first of all, uh, Ukrainians became more selective in terms of the uh, foreigners that they um, accept to, to fight uh, alongside its armed forces. So essentially from the second uh, week of war, I think they've only 
accepted individuals with actual combat experience, not with military experience, which was no, no longer sufficient, but with um, actual combat experience. And um, essentially, literally all of those volunteers who are currently foreign volunteers uh, serving uh, in Ukraine, either as part of Ukrainian armed forces or as part of some of these volunteer battalions, uh, such as, for example, International Legion. Uh, there's also a Georgian National uh, Legion, which mostly consists of uh, citizens of the Republic of Georgia, but also has lots of Westerners, Americans, and uh, um, people from all over the Europe. So all of these volunteers, uh, they, uh, they've had some sort of a combat experience, and only those who have managed to enter Ukraine during the first days of the war might have been individuals without any combat experience or military experience. And uh, if they were successful enough in order to be accepted to either of those battalions, because as time went on, uh, these battalions became also ex exceptionally selective. And for example, Georgian uh, uh, National uh, Legion uh, only accepts people with proven uh, and relatively extensive combat experience. and. Uh, uh, they have quite uh, significant screening procedures for, for their uh, new records. And uh, the, the same goes for quite a lot of other uh, regiments and battalions who, who recruit uh, foreign fighters. Uh, so uh, it, it has been uh, a, a scene uh, for uh, experienced professionals rather than for anyone who, who wants to fight for Ukraine. And uh, that, that also makes sense because... Uh, Ukrainians simply lack time to provide adequate training to these individuals, and even uh, those with a combat experience, they still require uh, a fair amount of training because uh, most of those uh, uh, veterans of, uh, for example, uh, Iraq or Afghanistan campaigns from uh, NATO countries, from the UK and uh, US militaries, they still require quite quite a lot of training uh, for this completely different uh, conventional style warfare and. Uh, so it's it's a time and resources for Ukrainians, and that's the reason that that they're highly unwilling to accept literally anyone, and uh, they're very selective in terms of who uh, they will accept and uh, who they will allow to enter the country and to to participate in in the conflict. Are there any Russian volunteer units or or fighters coming from around the world to volunteer on behalf of Russia? Well, uh, Russia relied quite quite uh, significantly on volunteers uh, during the first several months of the conflict. So they had a number of volunteer regional, mostly uh, from from across different Russian regions, volunteer battalions, and they've consisted uh, partly of uh, people with military experience, partly of people with uh, combat experience, but also of individuals with no experience. So uh, they were quite indiscriminate in terms of who they accepted to serve in these battalions. And obviously these were contract personnel, so they, they had contracts and they received some some form of payment and some of them were promised quite a lot of money for participation in the conflict. But as we later learned, most of them have not been paid even a fraction of what they have been promised. So most of these um, uh, volunteer uh, battalions, uh, they were made up of uh, Russian citizens from different parts of Russian Federation. In terms of uh, foreigners, uh, certainly they have been different reports of, uh, uh, I won't probably not use the word uh, volunteers, but uh, foreigners from uh, 
different uh, Arab states, uh, such as, for example, from, from Syria and possibly also from Libya, uh, participating in this conflict. But um, I believe these were just... Uh, individual examples and uh, there were possibly no more than a few dozen of those individuals who were actually possibly forcibly sent by their own governments in Syria or Libya to to participate in this conflict. There were also reports of Iranian drone instructors being involved and also being killed by, by Ukrainian um, airstrikes. Um, in this conflict. So uh, the number of foreigners, non-Russian citizens actually participating on the Russian side, I believe is very limited. And uh, there were also reports of some uh, Serbs uh, from Ser from Serbia uh, participating on the Russian side. But uh, again, we're possibly talking about uh, less than 10 people. And uh, uh, yeah, the Russia certainly has not been uh, very successful at attracting uh, foreigners. And to be honest, it doesn't have that many allies in the world to actually uh, recruit from these countries and to attract individuals of different uh, nationalities from outside of the Russian Federation to participate in this contract uh, in this conflict. So certainly Ukraine has been much more uh, successful in, in terms of attracting international support in terms of human participants of this conflict. Fantastic. And I, I finally, I'd like to bring this bring this to a close by asking you a pretty difficult question. It's long been said that most wars actually end at the negotiation table rather than on the battlefield. But at the same time, it's often the winner that actually dictates the terms of the peace to the loser. Do you see a feasible scenario in which Zelensky or Putin, or at the very least Russian officials and Ukrainian officials, perhaps mediated by, by other states, are able to come to a legitimate ceasefire and negotiate a way out of this conflict rather than Ukraine or Russia or both states having their militaries and a significant number of their population destroyed in the process? Can diplomacy end this war before an eventual winner emerges? Well, that, that, that is indeed a different, uh, difficult question. I would say that in order for negotiations uh, to take place, uh, either of the sides has to realize that uh, they have uh, more to lose uh, from participating in the conflict uh, than from uh, brokering some sort of a, a peace agreement. And as things stand, uh, both sides at a sort of a standstill um, situation when... Uh, neither can actually make any concessions. And uh, for Ukraine, it's quite obvious uh, that whatever Ukrainian government will, will make uh, any sort of uh, territorial concessions to Russia, that government is not likely to stay in power for too long. And for Russia, uh, there's not much to concede either because uh, we see that Russia actually wants more than rather than less, and it wants more territory, it wants more concessions from Ukraine and from the West. So uh, despite uh, this conflict lasting for already uh, one full year, uh, we don't see either of the sides being actually prepared to uh, concede anything because uh, in order for negotiations to take place, obviously there has to be concessions made at least by one side and uh, uh, the situation currently is that neither of the sides is actually able to make any concessions. Initially, Ukraine was uh, forced into making concessions as part of this uh, uh, Minsk agreement uh, back in 2014 and uh, in February 2015. And after that, there was no Ukrainian government that was willing to make any concessions at all. And the same goes for the Russian side or the separatists. So it's not very likely that there will be any 
negotiations unless the situation on the battlefield will change significantly either in favor of one uh, side or the, the other and probably i could talk more about this um, aspect because it's quite complex but i'll, I'll stop at this point uh, perhaps that's something we can uh, we can revisit in a few months' time when we see you know where the conflict yeah. takes us and what what happens on the battlefield and uh, in the back rooms at the Kremlin and also um, in Kiev. So thank you so much for the time. It's been a fantastic conversation. I've, I've enjoyed it immensely. Just before I let you go, I would love to give you the opportunity to tell everybody um, what about projects that you're working on now and how they can find you um, on the internet, on social media, and how they can follow what you're involved in. Yes, so I'm currently working on uh, this uh, research grant project uh, that's called From Russia with War, a mobilization of foreign fighters in the former Soviet Union. And we have a website, which is a part of the University of Glasgow website, but we also have our own Twitter account, which is also called From Russia with War, which I would invite you to follow because we regularly post updates about the project, uh, but also about uh, the broader topic of foreign fighters in Ukraine and the former Soviet Union. So we do regular updates on our Twitter account. And uh, uh, yes, so this is a project that will continue for another year. And we're hoping to collect some interesting primary data on foreigners participating in uh, in the war in Ukraine and uh, more broadly also on foreign fighters involved in other uh, conflicts in the former Soviet Union, most of them um, conflicts which took place in the past, for example, uh, Islamist uh, or jihadist insurgency in uh, Russia's region of North Caucasus or uh, in uh, Georgia, for example, in Abkhazian conflict and South Ossetian conflict. So it's a project that looks at a broader range of conflicts in the former Soviet Union. And uh, yes, definitely, I would invite you to follow our Twitter account and I will, I will share with you the link to, to both our website and our Twitter account. Fantastic. And I'll, I'll make sure that all of that ends up in the description for this podcast and also for the associated uh, Substack article as well. Um, thank you so much. We really enjoyed it and look forward to speaking to you again sooner rather than later, hopefully. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. And that's episode five of Will Beyond the West Done and Dusted, folks. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Aliyev as much as I enjoyed speaking with him. Um, I can't wait to have him on again to talk more about his From Russia with War project, uh, the links to which you can find in the podcast notes. This episode was also of real personal significance for me, because not only have I closely followed and documented the conflict for national media throughout the war, uh, but I spent a considerable amount of time living in Russia, and have also travelled to Ukraine on several occasions. Some of my most meaningful experiences and fondest memories were forged in those countries, and I was lucky enough to meet some of the most deeply intelligent, sensitive, fascinating and wonderful people, all of whom impacted my life for the better, and it saddens me that those people and places that I knew are no longer there and will never quite be the same again. Thank you for listening, and you can find more content on World Beyond the West's Substack page, which you can find at wbtw.substack.com. All the best and catch you next time.